Amen. Thank you to the choir. I know that uh, they felt they were a couple people short today, but you guys did a great job, really. Thank you for leading us in worship. We are back in the book of Romans, Romans 12, 9 through 21. And you may remember we're in this second part, second half, really not half, but the second portion of the book of Romans. We've been in in Romans now for the better part of a year. I believe we'll be coming to the end of Romans sometime in October, at least if we stay on schedule, which is a big maybe. But the second part of Romans is really all about the application of the gospel. How do we take all that we've learned about God's grace through Jesus Christ, the fact that we were under God's wrath, we were slaves to sin, enslaved to the law, and God in his mercy gave us his son Jesus. Through faith in him we find forgiveness in eternal life. How do we, how do we respond to that? How do we live out our faith? And really, in this next section of Romans, he gives a, a hodgepodge, a, an array of different commands about all different things, actually. So well over 20 different commands. And if you had to think of what kind of brings it all together, it's living out the Christian faith. How do you live out the Christian faith? This is a big deal. In fact, I think that most non-Christians would say this is their, their biggest turnoff when it comes to Christianity. It isn't Jesus. It isn't even necessarily the message of the Christian faith. It's that the Christians that they know in their life, and you can put Christians in quotation marks if you want, don't live out their faith very well. I think it was Gandhi that famously said, I like their Christ, but I'm just not so crazy about their Christians when it comes to the Christian faith. And it's not just non-Christians. I think as Christians, this is what hurts us the most. right? It's not necessarily a non-Christian criticizing you or your faith. It's the type of backbiting, gossip, slander, the problems that you face from other Christians. When Christians don't live out their faith, that's what hurts us. Now, none of us can live out our faith, meaning be exactly like Jesus. That's an impossibility. In fact, that denies the very faith that we proclaim. We believe we need a Savior. We believe that we cannot reach moral perfection. That's why we have Jesus. However, it is a fair criticism to say But is God changing you? Are you beginning to live this out? Are you beginning to reflect the Savior that you proclaim? Look with me at Romans 12. Romans 12, 9 through 21, as I said. uh, Really a section of Scripture where Paul is just, in writing to the Romans, is just going to give a whole bunch of commands. Now there are certain things that tie it all together, but really he's describing what living out the Christian faith in response to the gospel looks like. This should be up on the screen as well. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do 
what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading, the preaching, and the receiving, the application of his word this morning. Here's where we're heading out. Live out your faith in the gospel first. Love and fervency, 9 through 12. Then I just want to look more specifically at one verse, generosity and hospitality. And then that final section about peace, harmony and peace, 14 through 21. All right, that's where we're headed. So looking at 9 to 12, the overriding command in this first section here is let your love be genuine. This is actually clearer in the Greek than in the English. Uh, In the Greek, there is only really one primary command, let your love be genuine. And all of those following commands, just in that one section, 9 to 12, are really dependent. They're participles, meaning they depend upon that overriding command to love, let your love be genuine. The point being, all of these other things said are really ways in which we allow our love to be genuine. They're, they're expressions of genuine love. Um, but notice that our love should be genuine. Uh, God is not asking us to put on a face. He's not asking us to pretend to love people. He doesn't want us just to go through the motions. He's calling us to genuinely love one another. And part of that is this next phrase, to abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. I love that because it's so simple. It's so clear, right? Don't do evil. <laughs> do good, right? I mean, it, it's as, it, it looks at the world with a sense of clarity. We like to try to say everything is sort of in that gray area. It's not true. So much is clearly evil. Don't associate with it. Don't unite with it. Don't do it. Don't take part in it. So much in this world is clearly good. Hold fast to that. Continue to pursue what is good and turn away from what is is evil. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. The initial word for love there is the most common one, agape. You've heard that before. This one is Philadelphia, from which, yes, the English, the the city gets its name. Uh, So philos is a different word for love. It's more of a friendship. Love one another with a a certain affection. Uh, You should actually genuinely care for one another. It isn't just a choice to love someone. There should be Emotion. There should be some affection behind it. Um, I remember here, I've heard the phrase, you've probably heard this before too, that God calls us to love everyone, but he doesn't call us to like everyone, right? Now there's some truth to that, right? There is some truth to that. You can't really get yourself to like everyone, but that can often be an excuse to say, well, I have no actual compassion or care for people, but I do choose to help them and love them. And that's not the picture he has in mind here for the church. There should be a genuine affection and care and concern and friendship with one another. Outdo one another in showing honor, right? If you're going to compete with each other, uh, don't compete to one-up one another. Compete to serve one another. Compete to honor each other. Uh, What we should really be doing is seeking to outdo each other in showing love and honor and respect towards one another. And there should be a passion about our Christian life. Verse 11, don't be slothful, lazy in your zeal, 
right? Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Get to it and do it with excitement. Do it with zeal. Do it with passion. Verse 12, rejoice in, just again, these lists of commands that show an expression of genuine love. Rejoice in hope. Keep your eyes focused on what is to come in the Christian life. We will be with Jesus someday. No matter what happens between now and then, for those who truly know the Lord, we'll be in the very presence of God. Be patient, therefore, in tribulation as you face trials and difficulties and hardships in this world. Once again, it should be clear, but we are never, ever promised that we don't face trials, tribulations, suffering, difficulties in this world. It is part of the Christian life. Be patient in tribulation Be constant in prayer. Pray without ceasing. Pray continually. Friends, one thing we can say for sure is love is a big deal when it comes to the Christian life. Love is a really big deal. First of all, God is love, right? That's a a characteristic, an attribute of God that is so important, it describes his very being. Now, it doesn't say that love is God. So I think that's kind of of taking God as if he is this kind of pantheistic um, force in this world. You know, when you sense love, you sense God. That's not what the Bible is saying. But it is saying that God's characteristic of love is so important to his very being that he can be defined as love. It, It doesn't say God is loving, right? It says God is love. It doesn't say God is mercy in the Bible. It doesn't say he's justice. It says he's just and he's merciful, But love alone is described as an attribute so essential to God's being that he's equated God as love. More than that, we as Christians are called to do what? Love God and love our neighbor. What is the whole of the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Every commandment in the entire Bible ultimately comes down under the banner of those two commands. If you are loving God truly and really as God calls us to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, you wouldn't break any commandment in relation to God. And if you could truly love your neighbor as yourself, you would not break any commandment in relation to one another, which we constantly break. But nevertheless, love is the summary of the law. Jesus said, it's by your love that all men will know that you are my disciples. It will be the the characteristic of Christians that reveal that we really belong to Jesus. More than that, the Bible doesn't just say love your neighbor. It says love your enemies. Love those who persecute you. Love those who hate you. Love those who insult you. Love those who actually physically try to harm you. And our response to them is one of love. That was a really big deal in the Bible. The problem with love, um, it's not really a problem with love, but it's just we have no way of measuring it, right? So, you know, the marks of a true church in the Reformation, they said, was first the faithful preaching of the word of God, right? Faithful preaching of the gospel. 100% agree. If you don't have the faithful preaching of the gospel, you don't have a true church. And the second one is the faithful administration of the sacraments, so the Lord's table and baptism, and sort of associated with that is the idea of church discipline, a recognition that sin is wrong and dealing with sin. That's what makes for a true church. I agree 100% with the Reformers that those two are the marks of a church, but you have to add there, what about love? What about Christian love? Right? Because if you say, if I went to a church where the gospel is clearly preached and they are doing the Lord's Supper and they're having baptisms, but there is a cold-hearted self-righteousness to it, I don't know if that's a true church. But the problem is you can't, you can't measure it, right? How do you measure love? I mean, if the Bible said uh, a church has to have this number of people attending, you can measure that. The budget has to be this big or something like that. But love is an intangible. 
but you know it when it's there, right? So if you go to a church, you will sense hopefully pretty clearly whether there is actually some Christian love here. It's one of those things you know, you know it when it's there. You can't measure it, but if it's not there, something is severely lacking. Just a few words of application before we move on to the next section. Notice that emotions are commanded by God. And we say, how can God command emotions? Um, I, how do I make myself more loving? <laughs> how, how do I make myself more joyful? Uh, the Bible, by the way, commands emotions all over the place. That's a very common thing for God to do, is to command us to rejoice, command us to weep over sin, and so forth. Well, one way, as he says here, is be constant in prayer. So if you're sitting there saying, I, you know, I don't have this affection, Pastor Rick. I struggle with really caring about other people. Ask God for help. Pray and say, God, give me compassion. Give me care. Give me concern for other people. Genuine, real concern for others. I'd also say, just start doing it, right? I mean, this is, this is just sort of basic, um, this is basic marriage counseling, by the way. A couple comes in, Pastor Rick, I just don't feel anything for him anymore. He responds, you know, I don't feel like it's there anymore either. My response, when's the last time you've gone on a date? Oh, I don't know, it's been months and months. When's the last time you had dinner? When's the last time you sat and had a conversation? Well, we don't, we don't feel it. Well, go ahead and start going on a date again. <laughs> start doing the things that loving married couples do. And eventually, perhaps prayerfully, that affection will return. Same thing, with the, I would say, with the local church. You get involved, you get to know people, you start to visit people in the hospital, make a phone call, get involved in a community group, and that affection begins to arise within. Be fervent in zeal, jump in, and be ready to serve. Friends, we as Christians need to make sure that love is essential to who we are as a church, that it's a mark of our very uh, congregation. But he goes on from there and talks specifically about generosity and hospitality. Look at verse 13. Now, this is part, to be fair, of the previous section. Again, these are also dependent clauses on the greater command to let love be genuine. Uh, But I wanted to kind of zero in on these particular two commands uh, this morning. Uh, Contribute to the needs of the saints. He certainly has in mind here physical or at least, yeah, physical or financial support uh, of others. The saints, by the way, refers to all Christians. There is almost no doubt on that, by the way. In the New Testament, the term saint or holy one is a reference to all Christians. Now, I know later on in the church, in church history, pretty quickly actually, the term saint started to be used for sort of Christians that are sort of higher up or excellent or have done a few um, miracles. And, you know, I think the standard now is you have to commit two verified miracles or all these type of things. But even then, it is pretty clear that in the New Testament... It is undoubtable that the term saint refers to any and all Christians. So the calling here is to contribute to the needs of the saints. Help, help those who are in need in the congregation. There should not be someone in a church who is very wealthy and another person who can't afford any food, right? You can have someone that's very wealthy, but they should be contributing to the needs of the saints in that congregation. That's part of love. It's not only just the fellow members. It certainly refers to missionaries as well, supporting missions, or part of people who are a part of other churches. That's what we see in the New Testament. The church in Jerusalem is going through a famine, and you've got churches like in Laodicea that are very wealthy. And so what do they do? They take up a collection and they support the, the saints, the Christians in Jerusalem who are going through a hard time. I think we could even say beyond that, it isn't even just that. And we, love is never meant to be limited. 
So we help those in the community, even if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer. It's one of the things our, our Open Hearts ministry does. Anyone's welcome to come get a meal. Anyone that needs a jacket in the winter can get a jacket or some toilet paper. We're not going to sit there and say, you have to agree with us in our theological perspective in order for us to help you. Love goes beyond that. And he also says, seek to show hospitality. Hospitality is to welcome people into your home and into your life. Looking more specifically at both of those, first, contribute to the needs of the saints. Um, By the way, this is, of course, uh, really for our regular attenders and our members here. We always say this, if you're a visitor, and especially if you're not a Christian and you're with us, you're very welcome to be with us. I'm thankful that you would come to, to join us on a Sunday, if that's you, or watch us online. Um, but we, didn't expect, we would not expect anything from you. But for our regular members and attenders, there is this calling to give, to be faithful when it comes to generosity. And friends, this is part of the Christian life. We are meant to be givers. If somebody gave the church a $100 million gift, Right? And we were set for the next 10, 20, 30 years. We never needed a thing financially. We would still ask people to give. And we'd find good uses for it, continue to you know, send it to the mission field or whatever. Because we would be doing you a disservice <laughs> to not give you the opportunity to give generously. If you, had, if you had every area of your life sort of in line, you're a prayerful person, you study the word, you're involved in a small group, you serve in a ministry, and you're reading the Bible devotionally every day, but you don't give a dime to anyone anywhere, you are a spiritually sick person. Something's off there. And that greed will only grow. Giving is an important part of the Christian life. We give generously to others. And by the way, Christians are givers. I mean, that's actually pretty clear. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but when it comes to Uh, the world and sort of donations and philanthropy, Americans are the most generous of uh, people in the world, so out of any other country. And in America, religious people are the most generous people, far more um, generous when it comes to giving, both in percentage and in amount, than secular people. When it comes to religious people, Christians are the most generous givers of all others. Hindus, interestingly enough, is the second most Out of Christians, Protestants are far better givers than Catholics, statistically speaking. Out of Protestants, evangelical Christians are better givers than mainline Protestants. Um, And I wish I could end there, but I can't. The greatest givers are Mormons, interestingly enough. So let's let's get to it and beat the Mormons in our generosity, right? So, you know, but it's part of the Christian life. If you think, well, that's because Christians all give to their local churches. No, it's not true either. This is from an article called Less God, Less Giving from Philanthropy. People with religious motivations don't just give to faith-based causes. They are also much, more, much likelier to give to secular causes than the non-religious. Two-thirds of people who worship at least twice a month give to a secular cause, compared to less than half of non-attenders. And the average secular gift by a church attender is 20% larger than those who don't, who are not religious as well. They're more generous to churches. They're more generous to other needs within a community as well. I want to say thank you. Thank you for being a generous church. So this is not a rebuke. This is not a correction. It's really just a thank you. Um, I, I don't know what everybody gives. I don't have access to that information intentionally, but I do know that we have a generous church. I see 
the trends, I see the numbers, and yes, sometimes I do hear about a gift or two that comes in um, in our church. Just recently, I did a birthday fundraiser on, on Facebook. Facebook allows you to do these sort of donation things, and I just threw $1,000 in there, and I did it a couple weeks before my birthday. Two weeks. T- two days. It took two days to reach, to reach and then excel beyond uh, the $1,000, and mostly from those within our church family. When there's a need, if we mention the need, somebody addresses it, and very quickly, someone will give a gift to meet the need. And we're able to support missions, we're able to support ministries around the world because of your generosity. So thank you for your giving, and for those who are maybe just learning how to give, uh, watch how others do it. There's a certain trust in the Lord. Um, This is a very common uh, sort of uh, testimony you learn to give. The more you start to give generously, the more the Lord sort of provides so you can continue to give. Now, we don't give with an expectation I give to get, but it does seem to be the case that those who are faithful in giving tend to be well provided for. There was a time in my life, I'll just be honest, where I didn't tithe, um, and it was not a good thing. It was not a good thing for my own heart. It was not a good time financially. Um, I don't want to ever be in that situation again. I've been giving faithfully, and the Lord continues to provide in a good way. And this other one, Hospitality. This is a sort of characteristic of the Christian life that we tend to underestimate. Um, how often do you hear people talk about the importance of hospitality? But this is actually a requirement for pastors and elders. It's a physical requirement. 1 Timothy 3.2 says this, Therefore an overseer, or an elder, a pastor, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Titus chapter 1, verse 7, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And part of hospitality, again, is to welcome people into your home and into your lives. Um, That certainly would apply to a church. So, by the way, I don't know if you know this, the first church building... uh, didn't, doesn't come until 300 A.D. I think it's 298 to 300 A.D. Uh, before then, every church met in someone's home or in some hall somewhere. The church in Jerusalem met in the temple because that was the only building large enough to house thousands of people. They meet in this particular lecture hall of Tyrannus and Acts, we see. But there was no actual buildings that were churches. Not that that's necessarily wrong, certainly not wrong to have a church building, but this is our home, then anyone who shows up visiting here on a Sunday, or during the week really, should feel welcome. We practice hospitality right here on Sunday mornings. I know some of you guys are visitors. I hope you had a good welcome this morning. But that's a big deal. And if we're messing that up, that's not a good thing. It's difficult for someone to visit a church. Especially if you're someone who hasn't come to church in months or even years, some even decades, to step through those walls Take some courage. Take some uncomfortableness, right? And if you don't get a warm welcome, there's something wrong. But it goes beyond that. Opening your own home. Be willing to have other church friends over your own house. Whether that's for a meal, or a cup of coffee, or just a conversation. That's an important aspect of the Christian life. By the way, that's for all people, not just elders. Elders are supposed to be an example in that area, But all of us are supposed to be willing to open our homes. 
Um, uh, I struggle in this area. So again, I'll just be a little honest here. I like having people over at my house, but I also like being alone. So <laughs> I have to struggle with those two different things. Um, but I remember we had uh, one youth group girl, who's now a woman, married. Um, and uh, she told me she's probably the most uh, mature Christian believer in all of my youth group. The two years I did youth ministry, walking with the Lord, involved in ministry, happily married. Uh, she told me before, she said, you know what, uh, Pastor Rick, it really wasn't your teaching. It was, more important was spending time with you in your home, with your, the way you treat your family and the way you live. And I thought, man, does it have to be that difficult? Can't it just be the teaching? <laughs> that means I've got to open my home more often. There's a certain importance to say, this is how I live. By the way, I've noticed this as a pastor, visiting someone's home, seeing how they live, gives me an insight into their life. Seeing the pictures on the wall, seeing how they decorate their home, you know? They're a clutter person or they're a clean person, just tells you something about them. And having people over allows people to see an insight into your own life. And it's certainly not just Christians here either. Are you willing to welcome non-Christians into your home? It's a powerful form of witness to allow someone into your home. I know there are people in our church, whenever there's a visiting missionary or somebody who needs a place to stay, I know I can call them up. Drop of a hat, and they'll be willing to consider. I won't even name them because I might leave someone out, but there's, a, there's some of you guys that I know, your home is, an op- is open to visitors. Uh, when a missionary comes into town, give them a call, they'll find a room for him or her or them. Thank you for that. We're called as Christians to be generous and we're called to be hospitable. And then we're also called to harmony and peace. This last section is really all about forgiveness, peace, and unity. Look with me at verse 14, really going to the end, 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So that probably has in mind more those outside the church who are attacking the church, either verbally or even physically. And their response is to bless them, not to take revenge. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Let there be empathy, sympathy, compassion for other people. To sympathize is literally to feel together with someone else. Somebody is rejoicing, you're feeling their joy. Somebody is grieving, you're feeling their grief. Verse 16, live in harmony with one Another. I love that terminology, harmony. You know, harmony doesn't assume it's all the same. Actually, it assumes it's not all the same note or tune, right? That's what harmony is when you have different tunes that all work together. Um, I, you know, I don't, you know, I remember for a while, flash mobs were a big thing. Remember that? Flash mobs. Well, this is one video. It's a really difficult song. I think it's a Zeppelin song. So it's not necessarily, a, it's not a Christian sort of, where all of a sudden, I don't even know what country it is, one person, two people come out and they're starting to play the, the clarinet. And, and shortly after that, one person starts singing, female. And then a male comes in, he starts singing. And then someone starts playing the piano. And then someone else starts playing the drums. And then at the back of a truck, they open up the back and this guy comes out with an electric guitar. And then this whole group marches in singing verbally and they nail this song. I mean, it's beautiful in harmony. This is something that I think our culture doesn't get. That you can be different (laughs) and still be united. You don't have to have the exact same personality, beliefs, culture as me and still be united together into one church. 
Now the idea is shut down dialogue with those who don't agree with you. Don't even have a conversation. Cancel those. who just, You have a different view of whatever the subject is. Shut them down. Demonize them. Say that they're wrong and leave it there. The Bible, the picture in the Bible is quite different. That We have differences of gifting, personality, experiences, even differences on some of our theology. We're united on the essentials for sure. But there can be differences beyond that. By the way, if you're looking for a church that everyone agrees on every tiny little dot of theology, this isn't the church for you, sorry. Uh, we agree on the gospel, we agree on the essentials of the Christian faith. But there are differences of opinion. Somebody asked me before, would you allow someone who is pro-choice to be a member of our church? And my answer, without hesitation, is yes. I disagree. I'm 100% pro-life, but that's not the gospel. You may disagree in the role of the government on this particular issue and still be my brother or my sister in Jesus. And there are dozens of issues like that. I'd love to have a conversation with you. I'd love to convince you why I think that is a bad approach to the role of the government when it comes to the life. But I'm not going to make that a standard of fellowship within our own church. There can be disagreement and harmony and unity. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Don't be conceited and proud and unwilling to associate with people of a different social status. Don't be wise in your own sight. Recognize your own limitations. And then he gets to this idea of revenge. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 18, live peaceably with everyone and don't avenge yourselves. Quotes from the Old Testament here, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. This idea of putting burning coals on your enemy's head um, has left some interpreters of the Bible scratching their heads as to what exactly he's talking about here. Some have said it it brings greater judgment upon them in the last day. I don't think that's the point. Uh, I think we all kind of know the point. It brings a sense of shame, a, a realization that you're in the wrong when somebody blesses you for the harm that you're doing upon them and hopefully brings them to a repentance, a turning from that. And it doesn't allow evil into your own heart. Verse 21, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We as Christians are called to forgive. We're called not only to forgive, but to love our enemies. Here's how the Bible describes. 2,000 years ago, ancient document, Paul writing to the church in Rome, outlines how to deal with, with those who disagree with you, those who attack you, those who are your enemies. First thing, bless them. (laughs) Bless them. Pray for them. Seek their spiritual good. Don't curse them. Don't get into it. Two wrongs don't make a right, so that mentality, right? Jump in there with blessing. Pray for them. Seek their spiritual good. Second thing, seek to be at peace with everybody, so far as it depends on you. This has been so helpful to me in my own personal life. I don't want to be in a conflict with anybody. (laughs) As far as it depends upon me, I want peace with everybody. If somebody has a conflict with me, somebody doesn't like me, someone's after me, I can't change their heart, their their actions, I can pray for them, that's on them. But as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. Do what is honorable in the sight of all. Others are watching. Other Christians in the church, but others outside, non-believers are watching how you respond 
And if you respond with vengeance, they say, look, you're just like everybody else. And finally, leave judgment to God. He's a better judge than I'll ever be. So he'll take care of it in the end. He knows, he sees, he knows their heart, he knows what they've done. He'll take care of it. And I hope ultimately whoever the person is who's harmed you comes to a realization of their own sin and turns from it. This is true not just in sort of our daily personal lives, but even on the extreme. One of the most powerful examples of this that I've seen in recent days was the Palm Sunday bombing in 2017. On Palm Sunday of 2017, two bombs exploded in Egypt, one inside St. George's Church in Tanta, and one just outside St. Mark's Church in Alexandria. Those are Coptic congregations, Egyptian Christians. Remember, the Egyptian Christian church goes back to the first century. It has a straight line from the first century. It was the eve of the Passover service that one, the pastor of one of the churches, Pastor George, gave this sermon. And I've, I've sort of cut some of it out of it just to, to shrink it a little bit, but I want to share it almost in entirety. By the way, the bombing killed 17 people in one place, in Alexandria, injuring 40, 48, and 30 people were killed in the other with 78 injured, including children. This is how the pastor responded. First, I want to say, thank you. The first thing we will say is thank you very, very much. And you won't believe us when we say it. You know why we thank you? I will tell you. You won't get it, but please believe us. You gave us, and it's broken English because it's translated, you gave us to die the same death as Christ. And this is the biggest honor we could have. Christ was crucified, and this is our faith. He died and was slaughtered, and this is our faith. You gave us. You gave them to die. We thank you because you shortened for us the journey. When someone is headed home to a particular city, he keeps looking at the time. When will I get home? Are we there yet? Can you imagine if an instant he finds himself on a rocket ship straight to his destination? You shortened the journey. Thank you for shortening the journey. We thank you because you gave us to fulfill what Christ said to us. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. We were lambs. Our only weapons our faith in the church we pray in. I carry no weapon in my hand. We are so grateful that you have helped us fulfill this saying of Christ. Thank you for helping us achieve our goal. You're helping us, and you don't even know it. I know you don't understand, speaking to ISIS. But I'm trying to explain it to you. There are people we visited at home to encourage them to come to church three, four, five times. Still, they won't come. What you're doing here you're bringing to church the people who would never come. Believe me, it's bringing to church the people who would never come. People who are living in sin and away from God after the bombing of St. Peter's Chapel in the cathedral, they were saying, you never know when your number's up. Better take care. All these visitations we do, you're so much more effective. (laughs) You're filling up our churches. You're filling up our churches. Can you see why we thank you? We love you. The second part of the message we want to send to you is that we love you. And this, unfortunately, you won't understand at all. Maybe you won't believe us when we say we're grateful, but this you won't even understand. 
Why won't you understand it? Because this, is too, this too is a teaching of our Christ. I want to explain to you about our Christ. I want to tell you about how wonderful he is. See what Christ said, If you love those who love you, you have no profit or reward with me. Even thugs and thieves love those who love them. Any gang loves its members. Even the drug dealers all like each other and take care of each other, right? But I want to tell you that if you love those who love you, what reward have you? But I say to you, love your enemies. We Christians don't have enemies. We don't have enemies. Others make enmity with us. The Christian doesn't make enemies because we are commanded to love everyone. And so we love you. Because this is the teaching of our God. That I'm to you, I'm love to you, no matter what you do to me. I love you very much. And I want to say one last thing to you. We're praying for you. Because the one who told us to love you told us, bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. So my instructions from my loving God make it my duty to pray for you. So what do you think? How about we make a commitment to pray for them? Now speaking to his church. Pray that they know the God of love. Pray that they experience the love of God. Because if they knew that God is love and experience his love, they could not do these things. Never, never, never. They are a wretched lot. And because they are wretched, we must pray for them. But when someone loves God, he won't know except love. We need to pray for them so that they can sleep at night. A person who has all this inside them, how can he sleep comfortably? Can you imagine? We are slaughtered, and the King of Peace gives us peace to sleep. And the one who slaughters all night, he can't sleep. Pray for them. Take it as a command. Take it as a duty. Take it as the application of Christ's instructions. We must all pray for them today that God opens their eyes and opens their hearts to his love. Because if they knew him, they could never do this. I don't want to take too long. God comfort us. God give us understanding. God give us joy because Christ promises truth. He said, I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. I'm embarrassed to say at the beginning of Holy Week that the church, though she is in pain, rejoices because today, I don't know what the final count is at the time. They said it was 40-something, and of course many people in the hospitals will catch up to them. All of these are crowns. They are rejoicing with God. And they will, and they will attend the resurrection up there, and they are praying for us. The rest is on us. Oh, you lucky, lucky, lucky ones. And until it is our turn, to our God be the glory now and forever. Amen. Friends, we're called to not take vengeance because when we do so, we reflect Christ himself who said of those who crucified him, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. We don't allow evil into our lives with bitterness and anger and revenge. We seek the good of those who persecute us. Live out your faith in the gospel with love and fervency, with generosity and hospitality, with harmony, which assumes differences, and peace. As I started off by saying... We're called to live out our faith, and no one does this perfectly. 
And not only that, God doesn't say, do this on your own. Right here, okay, I've, I've done, I've given you the gospel, now you're on your own, see, to, just go ahead and respond. No, he gives us his spirit. He calls us to keep in step with the spirit. He gives us grace to persevere. He's at work in us. Friends, we don't live this out perfectly because Jesus lived it out perfectly for us on the cross. He's our savior. We turn and trust in him. And then we speak, seek in response to his grace to love with genuine love, to be generous and hospitable, and to live at peace with all people. Pray with me. Gracious God, the Lord Jesus has, has come as our Savior and Redeemer and an example of one who is in the image of God perfectly. And we seek to be like him, though we will fail. <laughs> though we will never be able to do it perfectly, it will always be a journey. It will always be a work in progress heading towards the kingdom and its fullness. But with your spirit in us, you've given us all that we need for life and godliness. Help us to continue to grow as an act of gratitude and worship as our Heavenly Father and as your children who love you. Be with us, Lord. Thank you for your goodness and your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.